trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think. It's not just a pleasant way to pass the time. It's actually becoming more of a survival mechanism as every passing day comes and goes. Man, I have never... I Look, I've... Okay, this is going to sound like a humble brag. Maybe I'm flexing when I tell you this, but I've been paying pretty close attention for at least 30 years. I have really focused on what's happening and tried my best to ascertain, all right, here's what's going on in the world. Here's what matters. Here's what doesn't. Here's what's truthful. Here's what's being spun. And that doesn't mean I got everything right, but when I, I guess my point is I've consciously paid attention. I've been willing to pay the price to go after information that I needed to, to make a more informed decision about what is and what isn't. I've never seen such concerted effort to try to uh, suppress and divert and deflect and keep people from finding the truth. So much of the propaganda that's coming at us now, 24-7, it's not even a matter of, you know, well, here's another big lie served up steaming hot. It's uh, more a matter of, you know, how can we keep you from actually getting too close to the truth? And yes, we being, you know, the people who are in power, the people who, it's in their interest that you don't understand what they're really doing. And that's going to play heavily into one of the topics I'm going to speak about on today's show. But let me give you another example of, of just how inverted reality has become. I saw this uh, news story. This popped up on Twitter, I think, last night. San Francisco building inspectors are launching an investigation into reports that Twitter has converted several office rooms at its headquarters into sleeping quarters for employees. You understand that? We need to make sure the building is being used as intended. This is at uh, Twitter's San Francisco headquarters. Yes, San Francisco, where you can poop on the sidewalk, steal up to $1,000 in the stores, camp anywhere you please. But uh, we better take a closer look at Twitter because uh, Elon's letting his uh, staff convert empty office space into bedrooms after he fired two-thirds of the employees. Yeah, kind of makes you wonder, wow, if somebody seems to have it in for uh, Elon Musk, or at least uh, his, his, you know, stewardship at Twitter. I wonder why that is. I tend to think it's because someone, I'm not going to name names, but someone seems to have a real phobia, and I mean that in the sense of irrational fear, that people are speaking the truth a little too freely. My friend John Miltimore actually made an observation. I saw this earlier today. He says, there's no such thing as a dangerous tweet. And he's right. I know the White House is kind of banging the drum right now. Well, you know, the, uh, uh, the incidence of hate speech is really on the rise at Twitter. But if you stop and think, well, what do they mean by hate speech? They're never going to define that for you because you're just supposed to come up with your own association. Ooh, hate. Oh, that sounds bad. That must be horrible. <laughs> we can't have that. Somebody intervene but they don't ever tell you what it is. And the reason they don't is because if they did, it would lose all meaning. What do you mean by hate speech? Well, the simple explanation is anything that either contradicts what we're saying or that points out how full of it we are in, in what we're telling you. That's considered hate speech. Not being obedient to whatever you're told to do, that's hate speech. 
questioning the narrative. Hate speech. Anything that makes me look like the fool that I am, yes, indeed, that is hate speech. Or at least it's hate speech if you notice it and, you know, believe it. <laughs> so, our work is cut out for us. Let's, uh, let's dive in. Got a couple of interesting things to begin with. Uh, actually, speaking of hate, because I understand this word is being tossed around a lot, there is a, a Supreme Court case right now involving a wedding website designer who does not wish to create same-sex marriage websites. Okay, it's, it's the cake issue all over again, but uh, there's a very classic misunderstanding that's taking place, and I want to tip my hat to Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation for, for making this distinction. Now, he doesn't shy away from the idea, well, that, that is discrimination. And then I know that we're supposed to be taught that, well, discrimination's wrong in every way, shape, and form, but it's not. And this is not a free speech issue. This is about property rights. And a person to have property rights has to have the right to discriminate. Here's how, here's how Jacob Hornberger describes it. He says, both left-wingers and right-wingers are debating how the Supreme Court should rule in a case arising in Colorado entitled 303 Creative versus Elenus. Now, the case involves the issue of discrimination. The plaintiff in the case, 303 Creative, creates websites for weddings. It is opposed to same-sex marriages, therefore, it does not want to provide its services to gay couples who are seeking a wedding website. 303 Creative has sued to prevent the enforcement of Colorado's public accommodations law, which prohibits businesses that choose to serve the public from rejecting customers on the base of race, sex, religion, or sexual orientation. Now, mainstream press commentators are couching the controversy in terms of freedom of speech, a right guaranteed by the First Amendment and by incorporation, the 14th Amendment. Undoubtedly, that's what the Supreme Court will do as well once it issues its ruling. But he says, in actuality, the case has nothing to do with freedom of speech. Instead, it is entirely based on another fundamental, natural, God-given right, and that is the right of private property. As the owner of its business, 303 Creative has the right to decide how to run its business any way it wants. Now, if the business was owned by the state, that would be one thing. Or if it was owned by society, that would be another thing. But the business isn't owned by the state or by society. It's owned by 303 Creative. As the owner of the business, 303 Creative has the right to decide to whom it will provide services. It's not a question of 303's, 303 Creative's free speech rights. It's simply a matter of private ownership of property. It has the right to decide to whom it will provide services because it, not the state or society, owns the business. By that same token, a homeowner has the right to decide who comes into his home. That's because he owns his home, not because he has the right of free, of free speech. Most everyone understands perfectly the principle of private property when it comes to a person's home. So let's assume that the biggest bigot imaginable is a multimillionaire and owns a huge mansion in town. He decides to have a big dinner party at his home, and he publicly states none of his invitees are Jews, Catholics, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, gays, or transgenders because he vehemently dislikes all of them. He publicly says that he will never allow any of those types of people into his home. Now, there might be plenty of people who would condemn him for bigotry, but Jacob says, I think 99% of the American people would say, well, he has the right to discriminate against all those people with respect to his dinner party. They would say that the man's home is his castle and he has the right to run it any way he wants. 
Now, there's something else to note about this hypothetical. The town in which our hypothetical bigot would be residing would not disintegrate because of his bigotry and because of his dinner party. There might well be some social ostracism of the bigot. Some people might even boycott the bigot's business. But life would go on, despite the bigot and his bigotry. We know this because country clubs are free to discriminate on the basis of race, color, creed, sexual orientation, religion, or any other basis. In other words, the law protects their right to discriminate. Nonetheless, there is no indication that the United States has fallen into the oceans as a consequence. In fact, over time, social ostracism, rather than the law, has pressured many, if not all, of these country clubs to end their discriminatory practices. The problem is that long ago, Congress, the state legislatures, and the courts begin treating privately owned businesses differently from privately owned homes. They begin saying that when a business is open to the public, it automatically subjects itself to state control. And that mindset is reflected in the language of Colorado's public accommodation law. But that's just an artificial, made-up justification for adopting a policy of state control over private property. And when the state wields control over private property, obviously the right of the private property is destroyed in the process. Either a right is a right, or it's not. If private property is subject to state control, then it's not a right. There is no valid distinction between a private business and a private home. Just as a private homeowner has the right to discriminate against others with respect to who he invites into his home, a private business owner has the same right with respect to who enters his business. Isn't that something? So let's assume our our, uh, hypothetical bigot has a giant retail store downtown where he refuses to sell products to the same types of people he refuses to invite into his home. That's every much his right as it is with respect to his home. And again, this isn't because of his right of free speech. It's because of his right of private property. In fact, we could say that the right of freedom of association also comes into play here. People have the natural, God-given right to associate with whomever they wish. And the principle of freedom applies whether we're talking about a person's home or business. Now, people would still have the right to boycott his business and patronize competing businesses that don't discriminate. But isn't that a much better way to handle this kind of thing rather than using the coercive apparatus of the government to destroy our rights? I realize not everybody's going to agree with this, but I happen to think Jacob Hornberger is spot on correct on this matter. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And a thank you to Garage Door Pros for being one of the sponsors of this program. I appreciate Seth. I appreciate his staff. And I appreciate the fact that uh, he is helping to make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. And if you're lucky enough to live in St. George, Utah or Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada or Colorado City, Arizona, well, Garage Door Pros is there to help you with installation, service and repair of garage doors, both residentially as well as commercially. You can go to their website, Garage Door Pro Services, to find out everything you need to know. And uh, by the way, to read some really uh, glowing customer reviews. And people like them. Obviously, they do a good job taking care of their customers. So, 
I wanted to talk about science in this segment. And, you know, just the other day I was talking about some of the incredible possibilities that lie ahead of us. I think it was David Deming out of University of Oklahoma who was sharing some of his thoughts on where science is leading us. And I have to admit, there's some pretty cool stuff on the horizon. There's some pretty cool stuff going on right now. But because this happens, you know, incrementally, it's, it's not like, boom, it just dropped on us all at once and I'm living in the future. I mean, I, I, tr- I remember as a kid trying to imagine what the future was going to look like. And I think we all probably pictured, you know, Jetsons, flying cars kind of st- stuff. Yeah, that's not the norm just yet. But there's a lot of stuff that, uh, that we do on a daily basis. I think our smartphones probably the primary exhibit that I would hold up and say, can you believe you're carrying around something that uh, not only enables you to look up whatever information you're looking for, but man, I'm craving a song from my childhood. Oh, I'll just go ahead and pull it up. Or there's a talk that I heard somebody reference and I wanted to know for sure what was said. Well, pull it up and, you know, listen to it yourself. Oh, and I want to take a picture of this hummingbird that happens to be hanging out on my porch. Well, go ahead. And I need to shoot some video of my dogs, you know, with the zoomies. Here we go. We'll take a picture. Amazing stuff. Now, having said that, science has definitely improved many aspects of our lives. Too many ways to count, right? At the same time, we appear to be headed for a dark age in science thanks to its partnership with political power. This is an article from Robert Arve that I picked up from AmericanThinker.com. Robert Arve says, Science has had a long and difficult path to its success and to its well-deserved respect over its main competitors, superstition and falsehood. Arguably, in 1945, that respect reached its zenith with the detonation of the nuclear weapons that are credited with ending World War II. Science-based technology literally exploded onto the public consciousness. No one could argue with its awesome demonstration of power, nor could anyone doubt that the predictions of scientists, no matter how fantastic, must eventually come true. Why, by 1966, we will all have flying cars. See, I wasn't the only one. But of course we did not. Now, that's certainly forgivable, he says, but scientific technology has fallen short of public expectations in more ways than just that. Some years ago, an eminent physicist published a commentary lamenting the transformation of science from an evidence-based endeavor into a proposal-based activity, a guessing game. Instead of observation, hypothesis, and experiment, physics seems to have moved its laboratories to the blackboard. Now we're all familiar with the confusing maze of cryptic Greco-Arabic symbols that describe for us such unproved pronouncements as the existence of multiple universes, subatomic strings, and dark physics— for none of which there is direct physical evidence. Yet these educated guesses enjoy a degree of acceptance rivaling that of confirmed experimental results and blurring the line between scientific fact and speculative conjecture. He says the resulting destruction of society from corrupt scientists is appalling. Billions of people are to be impoverished by futile attempts to adjust the climate to some unspecified parameters. Untold numbers of children are being castrated and otherwise mutilated to serve the transgender gods. Inadequately tested drugs are being sold, even mandated, to prevent self-limiting diseases, while effective therapies are being suppressed. In the meantime, actual scientists who dare to report these facts are being demonized and deprived of their livelihoods. Yale medical students recently shouted down a speaker rather than question his data and conclusions. Medical students! As Elon Musk might say, let that sink in. In the near future, how will we trust the medical advice of ideological MDs? 
Now, he says matters have only gotten worse since 1945. Worsening compounded by ineptitude, fraud, and political, ideological, partisan bias, not to mention money. So, ineptitude, according to a commentary in the Irish Times, a catalog of political mismanagement, poor communication, bureaucratic deception, and dithering and scientific ineptitude is set out in the official report on the BSE crisis published yesterday by the British government. Consumers were kept in the dark about the lethal threat to human health involved. Here's something about fraud, quoting from Explorable.com. Unfortunately, there are a number of more sinister cases where scientists deliberately fabricated results, usually for personal fame. With the advent of corporate and politically funded research grants, poor results are becoming more dictated by policy than by scientific infallibility. Mr. Avery says, uh, or Mr. Uh, sorry, his, that's not his name, uh, Robert Arve. Might as well get his name right if I'm going to tell you. Says political bias and personal profit, as included in the quotes above, have also become major factors in the degree to which scientific pronouncements have become suspect. Now, the medieval dark ages are, whether rightly or wrongly, infamous for medical procedures that caused harm and sometimes great physical agony to patients. The era of world wars and communism is also infamous for practices and policies by government resulting from purported science. These included intentional genocide and unintended famine. Clearly, as demonstrated at Yale's medical school, the primary school education of American and Western students has resulted in a young population entering college that's not only uninformed regarding the scientific method, but misinformed. That misinformation is the result of replacing education with indoctrination and replacing the free market of ideas with the slave market of ideology. As we await what might become a spectacular scientific analysis by the government on unidentified aerial phenomena, in other words, UAP or UFOs, there's reasonable suspicion that only a cover-up will be released. How can we place our trust in such official reporting on this or any other topic? Given the recent trends, he says, it's becoming more and more likely that we will soon be entering a dark age of science, whether literally or figuratively, we might resume burning witches while ironically practicing what amounts to pseudoscientific witchcraft. Again, this is from Robert Arve, published on AmericanThinker.com. Now, that's not to bag on all scientists, okay? And I'm, I'm not trying to suggest, yeah, therefore, you know, we, it's the scientists we should be tying to the stake and burning as heretics. But I think you can make a pretty strong case that uh, what was science, and, and I'll just give you the example, science for the sake of really, truly exploring, seeking out the truth wherever it may lead, has given way to science, which is based primarily on we've got to keep these grants coming, which means that the information that we put out there has got to favorably reflect whatever it is the person who's giving those grants wants to hear. I think of this in terms of, of climate change. Not that I'm going to deny that uh, there isn't change in the climate, but I think there's some pretty solid science to back up that uh, Earth goes through solar cycles that result in some pretty noticeable changes in the climate. And I think it has more to do with shifts in the magnetic field than it does with, well, it's because people are driving cars. <laughs> really? Is that what uh, brought us out of the last ice age 12,000 years ago was, you know, too many people driving cars? Hardly. By the way, if you are interested in what I think is actually good science, or at least the kind of science that isn't driven just by money or power or, you know, political affiliation, I strongly recommend Space Weather News or the YouTube channel of Suspicious Observers. 
I don't know Ben on a personal basis. He's he's the the scientist who talks about uh, space weather, talks about the sun, talks about you know the effects of of its electromagnetic field, not just on the Earth but on every planet in our solar system. And it certainly makes a lot of sense. Yes, there are changes going on. There's polar shift that's actually happening right now. The North Pole has been migrating for some time. It's something that's observable. I think the bigger question is, uh, but is it caused by mankind? Are changes in the weather caused by mankind? Or more importantly, can we change the weather back to what we want? Like, you know, some remote control. If we just give enough power and tax money to the right politicians. Yeah, that's the one I really struggle with. I, I'm not so sure that's that's true. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to a couple of my sponsors, including uh, lifesavingfood.com as well as monticellocollege.org. I've thoughtfully included show notes uh, or links rather in my show notes, which you can find at the brianhydeshow.com. And if you if you hear something interesting, you hear an article or you uh, hear a guest on here that you think, wow, I'd like to find out more. I would recommend go to the show notes. That's where you're going to find the hyperlinks that will take you further down the rabbit hole so you can check this out for yourself. And speaking of the rabbit hole, um, I'm just going to warn you right now. I'm, I'm about to delve into a topic that I really would rather not. This is going to be supremely disturbing for some people. In fact, it may be too much for you. So if, if you say, all right, that's it, I'm out, you know, and, and click off, that's fine. I understand. Even to talk about this feels like fear-mongering, and yet at the same time, I feel like it's just too important to downplay. And I'm going to go with an article that I saw on Lou Rockwell yesterday from Dr. Joseph Mercola. An invisible prison has been built just for you. Now, this is not, you know, well, you know, the uh, reptilian aliens who are masquerading as shape-shifting politicians in our government are plotting the overthrow of the world, and yes, They Live was actually a documentary. This is something that's, that's much more benign-looking, but it's every bit as dangerous as if, you know, we were being taken over by an alien situation. In particular, it's the, the step-by-step incremental implementation of things like vaccine passports, digital identity, social credit systems, and, of course, central bank digital currency. You know, if you're paying attention to these things, and there are some folks who, excuse me, are very much paying attention, these are coming together. They're becoming a reality. They're not hidden in the shadows. They're not just talked about in smoke-filled rooms and carefully kept from the public. They're being openly proposed as, well, you know, this will solve a problem here. Why the vaccine passport? I just watched a video. In fact, I just shared this on Twitter earlier today of a woman and her father, uh, I believe, flying into Canada. And uh, her 86-year-old father, he's in a wheelchair, doesn't have a cell phone. But here's this uh, bureaucrat greeting them as they're, they're going through customs and saying, well, you need to have the ArriveCan app on your phone. And, and the woman and her father, she's like, look, hey, my, my father has all of his vaccination records right here on paper. You know, this is everything he needs. He's, uh, he's had all four shots. He's up to date. Well, we need to, we need to have him on the app. So can you put it on your cell phone? And she's like, no, I won't do that. I have my cell phone and I have the app for me. 
And the, the official just keeps saying, well, why won't you put it on? What's the problem you have? Why, why don't you uh, put it on your cell phone for your dad? And she's like, well, what do you do when seniors don't have a cell phone? He won't answer the question. He just says, well, the government has to have your access to you on this app. And he just won't, he won't relent. And you think about this level of mindless bureaucracy. How can anybody in their right mind think, well, this is normal. This is good. I mean, I think she's absolutely within her right. He keeps asking her, what reason do you have for not doing this? Why won't you put this on your phone? Why won't you do it? And she just flat tells him, because I don't want to. What are you going to do with people who don't have the cell phone to take this app? And, of course, you know, he just keeps pushing. Well, but it needs this app. The point is simply this. This is part of the digital prison, which is mostly built, that will be the final lockdown of mankind, according to Dr. Mercola. He says your digital identity will be your digital prison. And in particular, uh, he has a, he talks about a, an interview with Maria Z with Z Media, interviewing computer scientist Aman Jabi. And in the video, Jabi goes through a presentation that explains the digital prison that is your digital identity. In other words, how your digital identity ties in with the coming social credit system and will control what you can and cannot do in everyday life. Now, I, I get it. This is, this is creepy, kind of scary stuff to consider. And you may think, Brian, you're off the deep end here. Well, I'm okay with that. If you, if you, if you think I'm nuts, you know, I accept that. And, and it, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Something in my heart tells me, though, this is something we need to pay attention to. Because if we wait until the moment where it's, well, you either accept this or your family doesn't eat. Or you accept this or you won't work your job. I know there are people who say it would never come to that, but do you remember what was going on one year ago? Get the jab or be fired. You do remember that was just a year ago that that kind of pressure was being brought to bear. Why wouldn't it be brought to bear on this? And as Jabi in this interview notes, surveillance cameras with facial recognition software have already been put in place all around the world. They are a norm. They're an essential part of the control structure, and this surveillance will be linked with digital identity, social credit scores, carbon footprint tracking, CBDC, central bank digital currencies, and more. You know, facial recognition has been sold as a big convenience and also a security feature. Why? With facial recognition, you don't need to remember pins or passwords. And since no one has your exact face, it's supposed to keep your personal accounts more secure. But Dr. Mercola says, as with other technologies sold under the guise of convenience and security, facial recognition is ultimately a tool for mass control and an essential part of your individual digital prison. As explained by Jabi, the Chinese control system is based on facial recognition in combination with a social credit system. In fact, he describes the, the Chinese social credit system as a feedback system that responds based on your behavior. Unbeknownst to most Westerners, an identical system's already been set in motion behind the scenes in Western countries. They just haven't told us yet. So surveillance is being weaponized. I mean, by the end of this year, just a couple of weeks from now, there will be one billion data-collecting surveillance cameras in the world, all connected to the Internet, as well as artificial intelligence. The U.S. actually has the most surveillance cameras per capita. China is in second place and the U.K. in third. I'm actually a little bit surprised we actually pulled out in front because the U.K. for a while was the most uh, on-camera place in the world. No longer. 
And in addition to all that data collection, cameras and audio recording devices and cell phones, automobiles, and smart appliances also collect and share data even when you're at home. And all these data are used then to give each person an individual score based on their behavior, expression, and interaction with the world. Ultimately, that score, your social credit score, will dictate what you can and cannot do, what you can buy, where you can go. Jabby also notes that uh, there are also con- additional control mechanisms being built into the hardware being erected. For example, smart light poles have built-in charging stations for drones, which in the future will be used by law and behavioral enforcement purposes. Do you understand what that means? We will largely be policed by AI and machines. These smart light poles can also be weaponized, built-in, or LED incapacitators, sometimes referred to as puke rays for their ability to induce severe nausea. LED incapacitators are weapons designed like a flashlight that emit an extremely bright, rapid, and well-focused series of differently colored random pulses. According to Jabi, these lights can induce brain damage, spinal damage, sickness, and maybe even death. LED combined with radar on some smart poles could be used to identify people carrying guns and theoretically used as a weapon to selectively take out people carrying weapons. Now, digital identity. I've been talking about this one for a long time, and I, I, I still cannot find it in my heart to believe that, well, you know, it's a good thing. Did you know, by the way, that real ID, that little star on your driver's license, they've pushed it back to 2025 to, to be the mandated deadline for all states must have real ID in place. Do you remember when this first came out? I think it was 2010 was when it was first targeted to, well, we'll have all this real ID stuff in place. And ostensibly, this was the response to 9-11. Yes, this is to make sure that people aren't uh, terrorists. This is, you know, government is just verifying your ID. I know in, in many cases, you can't fly without having a real ID compatible ID. Now, I'm a little bit of a troublemaker. When I went to get my driver's license last year, about this time, I realized, you know, they give you a choice in Idaho. They say, you know, if you want the star, if you want the real ID compatible driver's license, you can have it. My response was, no, no thanks. I'll just take the plain old driver's license. And some people will say, Brian, why are you taking that? But please, I have to function. <laughs> so that's that's easier than, you know, riding my bike or walking everywhere. Nonetheless, I declined the gold star. I declined that uh, real ID star because if I'm going to fly, I'll take a passport instead. And, and for some, the passport might even seem worse, but hey, they accept it in place of real ID. My point is I'm putting it off as long as I possibly can. I don't intend to get the real ID because I don't want my identity to become some government-granted privilege. Because if your identity becomes a government-granted privilege, it's something that if government gives you that privilege, you better believe they can take it away from you as well. And this, this uh, social contract that we allegedly have signed, well, then government can tell you what to do, and, uh, you know, the World Economic Forum is advising them that only people who toe this line can participate in society. Seems to me like it would be a great mechanism for control. I'm going to come back to this in the next segment briefly, but I'm going to encourage you to check out the article that I have linked in the show notes today. I get it. It's going to be a bit much for some, but this is crucial information you should consider. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If I haven't scared you off yet, I know that there are those who are going to be like, man, you are off the deep end today, Brian, and I may very well be. Look, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to follow my conscience, and this is one of those occasions where my conscience is saying, this is going to be an unpopular topic, or it's going to be kind of frightening to people, but you need to talk about it. And so I would rather risk, you know, alienating some folks and maybe even losing part of my audience by bringing up such a subject than, you know, regaling you with things that are soft in your ears and, uh, and missing something essential that needed to be talked about. I'm willing to be unpopular for speaking something that I believe needs to be spoken. And in this case, we're talking about digital identity, which it turns out is kind of a new chapter in the social contract. Dr. Joseph Mercolis's digital identity has been described by the World Economic Forum as a new chapter in the social contract. And he says the problem is that the WEF's new social contract is one that none of us have agreed to. It's being revised by the World Economic Forum and its allies and thrust upon the rest of us without our consent. And he says the vast majority of people don't even know what this new social contract actually entails or how it will affect their personal day-to-day lives and individual decision-making ability. And that, for obvious reasons, has never been fully delineated because if it were fully understood by everyone, well, virtually nobody on earth would accept it. I mean, a few people with normal intelligence uh, are not going to relish having their lives dictated by someone else. But he's got a really helpful graphic here that just lists off and shows some of the different ways and different aspects of your life that will fall under this auspice of digital identity, meaning you have to have the digital identity to fully participate in things like healthcare, for users to access insurance, treatment, to monitor health devices, to uh, have to have wearables, you know, your Fitbit or whatever, for care providers to demonstrate their qualifications. Got to have that digital ID. Financial services, you want to open a bank account? Or carry out online financial transactions, which is how most of us do business today. Better have that digital ID. Then there's food and sustainability for farmers and consumers to verify provenance of produce, to enhance value and traceability in supply chains. Then you have travel and mobility. You want to book a trip or uh, go through border control between uh, countries or regions. This is the digital papers you're going to have to have. Humanitarian response, for instance, to access services to demonstrate qualifications to work in a foreign country. How about this one? E-commerce. You want to shop? You want to conduct business or uh, have business transactions or secure payments? You got to have your proper digital identity in order. Social platforms to access third-party services that rely on social media logins. Again, your digital identity is going to be required. How about e-government for citizens to access and use services? File taxes, vote, collect benefits. Got to have that digital identity. Telecommunications comes up a couple of ways. One is for users to own and use devices, for service providers to monitor devices and data on the network, and also to monitor devices and sensors transmitting data like energy usage, usage rather, air quality, or traffic congestion. Now, this source here is the World Economic Forum. This is not somebody's made-up idea of, well, this is what I think they're up to. This is what the World Economic Forum is proposing. Can you, can you tell me with, with an honest heart that that kind of control would not be abused by people in power? 
But again, consent is really kind of the key here. So I'm going to jump off this subject here just with this thought. You have a choice. And I'm not saying it's an easy choice, but you do have a choice. Do you want to participate in this? Do you want this for your children and your grandchildren? And if the answer is, well, I'm not sure, or maybe it's just, hell no, I don't want this, then you need to participate in the movement to prevent it. And that starts with making changes in your own life to starve the beast of your personal data and, of course, educating family and friends about this necessity. It's a private prison, an invisible prison, that's being built for every one of us. But the the cruelest part of all is that the people who end up in this prison will voluntarily walk through the doors for the sake of convenience. I know. It, it's daunting. And I, I'm asking myself, okay, well, how much, how much convenience am I willing to give up? And I don't know the answer to that question yet. But at least I'm aware of the problem and willing to take some steps. And I hope that uh, by, by helping you become a little bit better aware, maybe, maybe you can uh, look at some of the alternatives as well. I think, uh, once again, we're going to have to come back to building parallel systems, parallel economies, We're going to have to look out for each other. And this may mean that, uh, well, if you uh, want to be outside the system, you're going to give up some of the luxuries. You're going to give up some of the comforts. You know what? To remain free? I think I'd be willing to do that. Especially if I can partner with like-minded people. Yeah, we uh, we may lack some material things, but you know what? In the grand scheme of things, my freedom is more important to me than material things. Material, material things mean very little without the freedom to chart your own course. On that note, I'll step off here. All right, two quick articles that I would like to point to your attention. Uh, the pettiness of the lockdown mindset. We thought it was all behind us. If you were listening yesterday when Eric Peters was my guest, he talked about Virginia police going after a restaurant owner for violating the 2020 COVID mandates. And I'm including an article from American Greatness, where this Army vet who owns uh, Matt Strickland, the owner of Gormelts in Fredericksburg, Virginia, was raided by police from the Virginia Alcoholic Beverage Control Authority over his remaining open and serving people during 2020. Look, you would think this is this is ancient history, right? The the lockdowns didn't stop the spread of the virus. They they really were. They, they were a futile gesture of people in control trying to do something, anything, to demonstrate that we're in control. But they had no control over the virus. They didn't care what mandates or executive orders were being, you know, barked out there. But police went out and enforced them. And they, this is the kicker. They are continuing to enforce them. Now, the video of, uh, of uh, Matt Strickland talking to these police officers... He's very gentle in in his tone of voice, but he's also just ripping these guys apart logically by asking them, you know, why are you here? Why are you doing this? Well, we're just doing our job. And he tells them, you know, there's a lot of people who said, I was just doing my job in Germany. But do you understand your job is you're trying to destroy my business and punish me for something that happened two years ago? And, and, And this is the kicker. Why are the police doing this? Where's the victim? I mean, if someone could point out, well, who's the victim here? The victim is some bureaucrat at some level who understands, well, my dictates weren't weren't followed, and therefore somebody has to pay so they know that I'm in charge. 
And it's sad how many of these police officers just go along with it. They, they can't question it. You can see on the faces of some of these officers, it's making them uncomfortable. Not because he's, threat, he's threatening them. He's not. But he's calling them out and telling them, look, I, I went and served this country and I, I went and, uh, you know, represented what I thought was the cause of freedom. And here you guys are telling me, well, I'm just doing my job. I'm just following orders and taking away those freedoms. Yeah, you can see there's a few of those those officers who I'm sure went home and had some trouble sleeping at night because they realize whew, there's there's a matter of conscience that's come up here. They weren't happy about it, and, and, and they shouldn't be. But I think Strickland's doing the right thing in fighting those COVID mandates, and I think ultimately he's, he's confident he's going to win the fight. He's also urging the American people, stop following unconstitutional and illegal mandates because only then things will change. And I think this is probably very sound advice. You realize we would never have gone this far down the, uh, the road to serfdom or the road to slavery if more people had just stood up at the beginning and said, no. I'm not going to use the language that Andy Frizzella uses, but he would punctuate it with a few well-placed F words. No, 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 we're not going to do this. But because people went along and maybe they were scared and I just don't know, I probably should do it because I don't want to be seen as being, you know, out of step with everybody else. That's why we are still facing all of these different aspects of people trying to gain more and more control over every area of our lives. Sooner or later, you're going to have to find the courage to do it or become comfortable with uh, your straight jacket or your chains or, you know, whatever digital form of slavery you find yourself uh, bound in. It gets easier. I think the hardest part is just recognizing, you know, okay, my government is out of line, whether it's your state government, your city government, your, your federal government. At some point when you recognize, hey, they're out of line and it is totally okay for me to say no or to withhold my consent. And you will be tested on it. There will be those, well, now put on the mask, get the jab, whatever it may be. Keep your business closed. But if you can find the courage to say no and stick to your principles... Yes, it may be hard, but you know what? On your deathbed, you can tell your kids and your grandkids, I did the right thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show.